Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Jeff. I'm the lead pastor here at the Vineyard Church. Thankful that you are worshiping with us this morning. Thankful to Mike O'Brien, our guest worship leader here this Sunday morning. He has been working all weekend long, and we appreciate it very much. Actually, if you are uh, desiring and you have a hunger for more extended worship and prayer, I would invite you back here tonight to bear the snow, bear the cold. We have a worship night planned, and by golly, we're going to do it no matter what. And so, I mean, we're from Colorado, right? We can, we can handle it. Uh, Mike's going to be leading that uh, along with our normal NOCO night of worship team, and so we'd invite you back uh, at 6 o'clock this evening to join us for that. Well, if you noticed from the video, we're in the middle of a series uh, from the book of James. We kicked this series off last week, focusing in on a message about trials and challenges of life, and we learned pretty quickly that James is a very direct and pointed leader and writer. He is ready to challenge the status quo. He's hoping to develop a, a greater sense of spiritual maturity amongst the believers that he's writing to. Really, it's a book of, of increasing that awareness of what God is actually doing in your life, increasing that spiritual maturity. It's, it's almost like a rite of passage type of book. If you're a believer, then study the book of James. I liken it to kind of peach fuzz faith becoming that full on beard, like duck dynasty style faith. Right. Last week we talked about trials. This week we're probably uh, going to look at the most famous text from James, and for some the most difficult part of this book as well. So naturally, when I run across the most difficult part of the text, I want to teach it, and that's what we're going to do today. It's from James two. I'm going to open up with just one verse, and then we're going to pray and ask God's blessing on this morning. James two verse fourteen. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are here with us, and I pray that you would move in this room. I ask that you would speak through me, that you would speak through your word, and God, I pray that you would help us to wrestle this morning with what it means to have an action-filled faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Martin Luther was a Christian leader that changed the faith of Christians about 500 years ago. He's a theologian, and he did amazing things for the Christian faith. But I can tell you that despite all of the amazing things that he did for the Christian faith, he did not really enjoy the book of James very much. He actually hated the book of James. He, he couldn't stand, every time he read the book of James, all of the theological questions just started pulling his heart and his mind in different directions. He didn't really enjoy it for a number of, of reasons. And we're gonna press into the text this morning that really rubbed him the wrong way. Last week, I talked about how James was written like a summary of a bunch of different ideas, almost like paragraph after paragraph of a new idea. And at the end of each paragraph, he would summarize what he's trying to say with like a quotable verse. If he was a modern preacher, he would have a Twitter feed with social media things that just be lighting up. I mean, book titles after book titles after book titles. This is kind of the nature and the way that he wrote the book of James. I want to read to you this morning 
some of the summary statements that Martin Luther had a really hard time with. Some of the statements that maybe some of us have a hard time with this morning, but they're in the Bible, they're truth, and we are going to navigate some of the tension behind these summary statements together this morning. I'm going to read uh, three of them, three summary statements. James 2.17, so you see faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Verse 20 is another summary statement. How foolish, can't you see that faith without goods, good deeds is useless? And then again, the one that really kind of twisted inside of Martin Luther's gut and likely some of us this morning, verse 24. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. It's no wonder Martin Luther had a hard time with this book. Those are challenging, challenging verses because you've heard many times, if you've been in the church for, for a while, you've heard many times that you're saved by faith alone, not by works. That no amount of good deeds can put you into a right relationship with God. That nothing, no good deed, no, 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 if, if you had a scale, the good deeds can't outweigh the bad. It's, it's through the relationship with Jesus alone that you are saved. Yet James, just verse after verse after verse, that faith, it's useless and dead unless it's played out in your life. And this text becomes even more difficult when you take James and you compare it to a book, just a few books before, there's an author in the New Testament named Paul. He planted churches all over the place and he wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. And this is what he said in Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done. So none of us can boast about it. Some translations read, you're saved by faith alone. You're saved by faith alone. So what is it? Which passage is true? Am I saved by faith alone or am I only saved if my faith plays out in deeds? You can feel the back and forth. You can understand why some theologians have struggled with these two books and these two verses just kind of sitting next to one another. There's real tension there. There's real tension there. So in order to help explain these texts, I'm gonna have my wife come up on stage. Natalie, come up. This is my wife, Natalie, if you don't know. This is my wife, Natalie. And uh, Natalie is going to be an actor. We're both going to act for a minute. She's going to play Paul. Okay, you're going to play. I told her about this last night. Of course, I just had an idea, right? So she's going to play Paul. Uh, we'll call you Pauline or Paulinette or something like that. I'll be James, the brother who's always struggled in comparisons to older brother Jesus. And Paul, right? Pauline says, "You're saved by faith alone." That's your quote, saved by faith alone. And I'm James, your, your faith and deeds need to line up. And so when we navigate these scriptures, we sometimes, we, we don't know what to do. We picture Paul. You're saved by faith alone. Great, she's getting it, she's getting it. And we picture James, it's faith and deeds. And we picture these two theological arguments like, like Natalie and I are right now face-to-face -face arguing 
over who is right, which scripture should be more elevated. And this is what we think these texts are doing. They're just face to face. By the way, we do not do this. In case you're wondering, we do not hang out at home and argue over theological points. You're standing standing and arguing with each other. She's getting more and more comfortable up here. And so we, we don't know what to do with this. Am I saved by faith alone or is it faith and deeds that makes me right with God? But the theological thing that you have to remember is that when you're navigating scripture, context is key. Context is important. Who the authors are writing to and what they're trying to say is actually important to the meaning of the text. And you have to realize that Paul is writing to a different audience that James is writing to. Paul is writing to an audience of of, of folks where he planted a church and he's reminding them about what their life was like before they had faith in Christ. And he's saying, remember, you're saved by faith alone. It wasn't your good deeds that brought you into a relationship with God. It was you're saved by faith alone. Let's celebrate that fact. James, however, is speaking to believers. James is speaking to people who've been following Christ for quite some time. He's answering a different question. Paul is answering the question, how can I be saved? But James is answering the question, how do I know if I'm saved? You see the two differences there? They're writing to different audiences. And so although sometimes we think that it's this argument, it's faith alone or or saved through works and works and deeds or what is it? And you think it's, it's back and forth. Actually, that's not the theological picture of these two texts. Instead, the picture is more like this. It's more like back to back. Same argument, same truth, but different audiences. She's speaking to the folks in Ephesus. I'm speaking to believers scattered around. Is this making sense? And so because of that, thanks, Nyla, you can sit down. Easy roll today. Easy roll. They're not face to face. They're back to back because they're, they're two different messages, speaking truth to two different audiences. James knows that good deeds won't get you into heaven. James knows that Good deeds don't start your relationship with Jesus. But again, he's speaking to believers. And so he's really tightening the screws on them. He's he's sharpening them. He says, you're not saved by deeds. But if you think you have a saving relationship with Jesus, then you should be able to prove it by your deeds. If you have a saving relationship with Jesus, then good works in the name of Christ should be a natural next step in your journey with Christ. James is not in contradiction to Paul. This book isn't in contradiction to the book of Ephesians. You just have to understand why they're written differently. Now, understanding that though, I will admit, doesn't make reading James a whole lot easier to navigate. It doesn't make the pill of of James chapter two easier to swallow the verses and the statements and the truth. Those summary statements that I read are still very challenging to work through. And remember, James opened up this whole section with like this rhetorical question about their faith. He said, what good is your faith if you don't show it by actions? Can that faith save anyone? He opens with a a bold and challenging question. And then as you navigate the text, you realize that he's actually asking that rhetorical question and then bringing two examples to light to actually reinforce his point. 
one right after another, and both are equally as tough to wrestle with. The first is that your words aren't enough, and the second is that your theology isn't enough. Your words and theology aren't enough. And, and hear me this morning, right? Like, words and theology are incredibly important. Okay, you need to know that what we say and how we think and view God are incredibly important to your walk with Christ. But James is simply saying that words alone or theology alone aren't going to be enough. Let me start back in verse 14, and then I'm going to read a few verses this time to show you kind of what James is saying. Verse 14 through, I'll read through 17. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Words alone aren't enough. Verse 14 says, what good good is it if you say you have faith, but don't show it? Have you noticed that our culture these days, we, we tend to love empty words. We have like, we're like the masters of empty word rhetoric right now in our culture. Social media has really elevated this. You can say anything you want online and it seems like there's hardly any weight to that at all. Political promises seem to have less weight behind them than they have had in the past. Sports interviews, I was watching college football yesterday. Every interview was the same. We fought hard. We really earned it today. My team, my team. Empty. There's there's no depth to those things. And it has even impacted the church because in some churches, right? Of course, not this church. Some, I'm talking like other churches out there, right? It's become enough to say nice words. It's become, eno- it's become enough to maybe talk about the suffering, talk about the hard things, but not actually step our life into them, to actually join someone where they're at in their suffering and and have relationship with them. I do think that in terms of having integrity between action, what we're saying in action, like it, it has come to a high point in this church with our last convoy of hope offering. We said that we cared for the poor, we took an offering and it was amazing. We had more offerings trickle in. I mentioned to you last week the number, but it's grown. We're up over $65,000 now. I secretly want to take a poll on how many of y'all thought I was crazy for shooting for 50, but we blew past 50, over $65,000, giving it all to the poor in the name of Jesus, all from your sacrificial giving. We're saying and we're doing, that is a really, really good sign for this church. But we're not perfect and and we all have room to grow. And in light of how Jesus keeps poking, keeps prodding and keeps challenging, then let me say again this morning that words aren't enough. 
Words aren't enough. You can't say something and do nothing. That's actually not part of the Christian faith. Our faith is a living and breathing and active faith that is demonstrated by lining up the activity of our lives with the beliefs of our lives. If James were here today using a modern example, he might ask, have you ever talked to somebody and said, hey man, you know, I'll be praying for you and then never pray for them. Have you ever said, God bless you, like I'll be sure to keep you in my prayers and then you just forget about it. If James were preaching to a late 90s crowd, he might say, you ever wear that WWJD bracelet? It's not gonna cut it. The bracelet's not enough. The bracelet's not, what about the little Jesus fish that you can put on the back of a car? My mom snuck one of those on my car when I was about 20 years old. She wanted the world to know that I had given my life to Christ. It was a, it was a proud, proud mom moment. But I realized after a couple of weeks, I gotta get that fish off my car. I, my Christian faith has not influenced my driving yet. And I am just a bad witness out there. I gotta get that thing. And then it leaves a little mark. So everybody knew that I had a Jesus fish on the car and now I took it off. So what does that say about my faith? Right? What we say needs to line up with what we do. I can tell you I've been redeemed. I'm, I'm a slightly better driver now. <clears throat> this text, a little bit. This text, once you understand the context, once you understand that James is speaking to a different audience, then Paul is a lot easier to understand who he's talking to, why he's writing the way that he's writing. And it actually becomes a very simple truth. Simply said, your words aren't enough. Words alone will leave you with an empty faith. And I'll admit to you this morning that actually navigating James, so I'm doing the James challenge, you know, read James every week. I'm doing a little different. I'm reading the same chapter five times in one week. So I really like absorb one chapter at a time. You can do that way if you want, or just read the whole book of James. Either is fine. But I want to admit to you that this text is sometimes hard for me. I'm a recovering performance addict. And so when I run across texts like this, there's, there's a natural tendency with my heart to just say, yeah, I'll show you. I'll show you my faith. I will start doing so many things that I'll get on that treadmill of faith and deeds and I'll start showing and demonstrating the world. My faith, I have to pause and I have to realize, no, wait, I'm unconditionally loved. God's not gonna love me more if I start doing more. Right? Some of you might be, uh, you might know exactly what I'm talking about. Others, you know, you, you don't even like the book of James. You're not performance driven at all. You just like to hang out in the book of Psalms or something all day long and pray about your feelings or something. I don't know. I'm joking. My wife reads Psalms all the time. I'm joking, honey. I'm joking. Right? Like we all have a different reaction to the book of James. We all have a different reaction to James too, but it's truth. It's in, it's in the Bible. And, and, and part of me really loves that James is unashamed to challenge the church. With boldness and with courage, he says, faith without deeds, it's empty. It's actually useless faith. It's not gonna do anything for you or the world around you. James is saying, you gotta show me something. Anyone can talk the talk. Can you walk the walk? Can you walk the walk? There is a tension in this, in this text, I will admit, and James continues. And if that was like level eight or nine, he just drops it down to level 10 next. Verse 19, 
and verse 20. Your theology isn't enough. Your theology isn't enough. That's, that's what's next. And of course, it's worth repeating in case you, you didn't hear me the first time. Theology is really important. Theology is incredibly important. How you view God and, and how you navigate scriptures and create those theological beliefs is incredibly important. But James makes a compelling argument, a challenging argument that theology alone isn't enough. Verse 19 and 20, you say you have faith for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this. And they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? This, I will admit, just made me scratch my head multiple times as I was prepping this message. The courage and the boldness and maybe a little sarcasm all thrown into one is kind of a brilliant way to approach this text. James is essentially saying, hey, Christians, if you believe in Christ, you think your faith is so great, you believe that God is one? La-ti-da. Even the demons believe that. You have essentially the same belief system as the demonic. Can you imagine reading this for the first time? You're in your little small group and one of, the, one of the most epic church leaders around writes you a letter and you open it up to James 19 and 20 and you read that out aloud to your small group. What do you do next? Like no amount of donuts and coffee is gonna cover up for that. Even the demons believe the same thing. And there's incredible depth to verse 19, actually, because it's a reference to one of the most famous Old Testament passages from Deuteronomy 6, 4, the great Shema is what it's called. And the Jews prayed this prayer every morning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You believe in that, James asks? Even the demons believe in that and they tremble in fear. It was Deuteronomy 6.4 to the first century church. The early church would have known that, right, picking it up right out of the pages. And again, if James were to write this to the 21st century American church, he probably wouldn't use Deuteronomy 6.4. He'd probably use a different verse. He'd probably use John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. This is like our Deuteronomy 6.4 in modern church. We all know this text. We see it at football games and baseball games. Someone always quotes it, right? We have this verse memorized. And I love this verse. It's central to our faith, similar to the way Deuteronomy 6.4 was central to their faith. And if James were here today, he might say, you have faith. You can quote John 3.16. You say you believe in Jesus Christ, but even the demons believed in Jesus. I mean, just read the gospels. You read story after story after the story where the disciples were confused about who Jesus was and the demons knew who Jesus was, right? Jesus would do miracles. He would feed the thousands. He would walk on water. And the disciples were like, who's this guy again? Jesus, can you speak to me plainly? Tell me who you are. Or I believe in you. And then a couple chapters later, I believe in you. A couple chapters later, finally they believe in him. Yet the demons, they come running to him. Who are you, Jesus, most, son of the most high God? What are you here to do with me? 
The demoniac comes out proclaiming that Jesus is the son of God. I mean, sometimes they had more accurate theology than the disciples. It's a scary thought. Can I just like in generally encourage us this morning? I think this will, this will be a good little uh, piece of encouragement. Can we have better theology than the demons? Like that's a, I know the bar is really low, but can we aspire to that? Better theology than demons? I think that's a really, really good like marker to make in our faith. James just goes, I'm gonna compare you and your faith to the faith of demons. I can't believe he did that. It's a head scratcher. I mean, you just sit and read that and you're like, really, James, why? Pick anything. Pick an inanimate object and compare our faith to that. It'd be better than the demonic. James just goes, yeah, well, you could pick whatever you want, but I'm gonna pick demons. He's telling us that theology alone isn't enough. He's telling you this morning, theology alone isn't enough. James is teaching us that it's action that makes your theology unique. It's action that makes your theology unique. This text is amazing to me because it still applies to us today. Today, we can still struggle with the same things that the early church did, thinking that, that knowledge, thinking that mental ascent, thinking that understanding different theological concepts and systems will get us saved, but it's, it's, not, the, it's not that way. It's not that way. And, and we live in this amazing age of YouTube and endless TV and published materials. You can truly become an expert in anything. I mean, right now it's fall. It feels like winter, but it's fall. You can figure out how to make the best chili. You can figure out how to carve a pumpkin to blow out your sprinklers, which I haven't done yet. I might pay for that later. And, and you can do all of, you can figure out all of these things on YouTube and you can know it up here but you not, might not know it in here. You might not know it in the actuality of your life. See, knowing something in your mind, James is saying it's not enough. I love having conversations with people when they say, they, they, you know the folks, they're just kind of experts on everything. You know, they, they know a little bit about everything. I'm a pastor, so I, I, I teach and I, I coach and I disciple people around a lot of faith-based things. And so I always find myself in conversations with people like, well, I know how to lead someone to Christ. Of course, I know how to share my faith. And he said, that's awesome. Can I meet the person that you've led to Christ? How, how's the, how, how did it go the last time you shared your faith? What was that like? You know, or, or Jeff, I don't really need you to coach me on how to disciple somebody. I know how to disciple. Really? That's awesome. What are you like top three things that you like to ask folks that you're discipling? Like, well, I don't, I don't, I mean, I read a book. I don't actually disciple somebody. I read a book though. I know how to do it, right? Again, mental knowledge, right? You can watch anything on YouTube. In, in a, just a matter of hours, there's gonna be another million sermons that are put out on the internet from this morning. And you can watch endless amounts of sermons. You can learn more things. James is saying though, that it's not just about what you have up here. It's what you have in here. And it's the way that you walk it out. That's going to demonstrate your faith to the world. It's not the truth you know because even demons know that truth. It's the truth you respond to. It's not simply the truth you agree with. It's the truth you act on that's going to set you apart. James says, you have faith? Show me. Show me the faith. Put your money where your mouth is. 
Where's the rubber meet the road? Any kind of cliche that you want, James is simply saying, show me your faith. Faith without good, good deeds is dead and useless. The biblical way, the biblical way to live out our faith is to demonstrate it. People should be able to look at your life and say, there's, a, there's someone that's different. There's someone who's unique. I, I don't have something that he has or she responds to anxiety way different than the rest of the world or that family over there, they practice forgiveness like I've never seen before. Your faith met with deeds should set you apart from the world around you. Ultimately, you should be able to ask the question, can other people see my faith? Can they see it? Can other people see your faith? This is essentially what James is, is trying to say in this text. You say you have faith, but can you show me that you do? Can other people see your faith? I've gotten into this habit recently now of trying to, uh, to share my faith with somebody on a weekly basis. This is, if you wanna do this, this might be a really good like action step for some of you. And the way that I've been doing it lately is I've just been gathering, you know, for coffee or for lunch or whatever, somebody that I'm getting to know. And I ask them a question, someone who's maybe not a believer. I say, hey, from your understanding of Christianity, from your understanding of who Jesus is, how do you see that in my life? Or how do you not see that in my life? And it, it's a really interesting conversation because sometimes they don't see much. It's a really humbling, humbling experience to sit and not be defensive, but just to sit there and listen. And other times I have the most amazing conversations because folks do see Christ-like characteristics in me and they're not even following Jesus, but they're calling out Christ-like things that they see in my life. And it creates this amazing opportunity for a great conversation and leading them into potentially the same faith that I have, the same kind of experience with God that I have. It's been a, it's been a great exercise uh, and a great way for me to get to know people that are maybe uh, not yet following Jesus. And then if you really want to kind of flip it on its head, you can say, this is how I see Christ in you. And non-Christians really don't know what to do with that. But again, it provides a great opportunity for an amazing conversation because we're all created in the image of God. They might not have met Jesus yet, but they, they have Christ-like characteristics in them. So being able to call some of that out really brings about an amazing conversation. But as I've had that conversation, I was doing this conversation, I've been doing this conversation well before teaching James. I've, I've just become awakened to it now that we're navigating this text. Can people see the faith that I have? Can they see it in my life? Can people see the faith that you have? Are you demonstrating it to the world around you? Simply put, James says that our faith becomes real. It becomes real when you choose to demonstrate it. Don't let inactivity, don't let inactivity in your relationship with God keep you from demonstrating your faith because it's word and deed. It's word and deed. It's theology and action. As the video said, it's faith and works faith and works. Let's pray.